Good afternoon. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute here in the broadcast studio of the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center in Annapolis. It's graduation week here at the Naval Academy for the uh, USNA class of 2022. So congrats, 22. All the best to you in the fleet and the Fleet Marine Force. It was great to see you all at your checkout day uh, last Friday, where almost 900 of you uh, signed up to be members of the Naval Institute, which is just terrific. Uh, we're waiting this afternoon for the Blue Angels uh, practice session. Uh, weather's been kind of crummy here in Annapolis today, so uh, the, the practice session was a little bit delayed. We're hoping that uh, they'll be able to get that in, and then big show tomorrow, and then uh, graduation on Friday. So always a busy week here at the end of May uh, here on the uh, Naval Academy Yard. Um, before we get to our guests, I just want to announce a couple of essay contests that the Naval Institute has active right now. The Marine Corps essay contest has a deadline of 31 August and a top prize of $5,000. Uh, and our fiction contest, which we co-sponsor with SIMSEC, the Center for International Maritime Security, has a top prize of $500 and a deadline of mid-September. Uh, you can find out information about these contests and all of our essay contests, which are judged in the blind. Just go to www.usni.org forward slash essay contests. Uh, and this, uh, talking about essay contests is a great segue to today's guest, Major Brian Kerr, U.S. Marine Corps. Brian has won or placed in several of our essay contests over the past couple of years. He won the 2021 Leadership Contest uh, with an essay titled Leading Through Defeat. He's also the 2021 Proceedings Author of the Year, and he joins us today from Quantico, Virginia. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back. I should say, welcome back to the show. Yeah. Um, so, how are uh, how are things down in Quantico? I know you're a you're a student at the the School of Advanced Warfighting Studies, and you're wrapping up. How are things going? Uh, it's going great. Uh, we're in the middle of our uh, culminating exercise. Uh, two weeks of uh, planning exercises, followed by a war game informed by that exercise. So, uh, lots of good stuff from that. Uh, may or may not see uh, some uh, some forthcoming content related to that. But uh, it's uh, it's fantastic. It's been quite a year, quite a ride. Good, good. Uh, so let's start with being selected author of the year, which we announced uh, was two weeks ago at our annual meeting. You were up here in Annapolis uh, in the in the Taylor Conference Center. It was great to see you in person. Uh, so now that you've been named the proceedings author of the year, do you have to wear sunglasses and hats in public to avoid the crowds? Oh, yeah. Uh, running from paparazzi, that's now part of my daily routine. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, all my training for the PFT and CFT is really coming in handy. I'm not the fastest Marine, but I'm fast enough to outrun a crowd. There you go. Uh, and you've also been elected to our editorial board. So congratulations on that. It'll be great to have you uh, join in the editorial board of the Institute. Thank, oh, thank you very much. Honored to do that and uh, really looking to turn some attention as well to uh, you know, help recruit some other writing talent. Uh, I sure intend to continue writing myself, but I want to dedicate some other attention to, to bringing some other uh, bright minds on board and uh, get them writing for proceedings. Fantastic. Uh, so tell our audience a little bit about what got you interested in professional writing. Uh, you wrote an article last year that I would point out to them. It's called Dare to Write. We published it in the September issue of Proceedings in 2021. Uh, which provided a lot of good advice um, for, for junior officers and enlisted professionals who want to do some professional writing. Can you recap some of that advice that you gave? Uh, sure, absolutely. Um, so as far as me getting into the game, uh, I got into professional writing to share ideas. 
when you see something wrong or something that you want to change, you, you can scream at the ocean or you can build a boat. Uh, one feels better than the other, but one is more productive than the other. And, and writing affords unique opportunity to shape, influence, or inform your organization. Now, there are a lot of ways to do that, a lot of good ways, uh, providing direct feedback to your chain of command, peers and subordinates, AARs, info papers, uh, submitting papers to lessons learned. Uh, those are important and they have their place, uh, but they do also have limits in scope. Professional writing for outlets like Proceedings, it offers a, a really powerful way to get information to a much broader audience within your community. And based on a lot of the feedback that I've received, I know that professional writing has allowed some of my ideas to have impacts that they otherwise never would have. You know, this could be, this has included a working group member at headquarters Marine Corps uh, working, uh, calling me to discuss an article in more detail to, to get some more ideas, uh, to being brought on board working groups as a member to help work the issue myself, um, had a CG reach out saying they like what I'm working on and connecting me to one of their own team members that they've tapped to work on this project, things like that. Uh, that never would have happened um, without utilizing professional writing as a venue by which to uh, get ideas out there. So, so I'd offer that to any listeners who are looking to help solve a problem they've identified. They can really help move the dial by leading through writing. Now, recapping Dare to Write. Uh, I was looking to address an issue that comes up a lot uh, when I'm working with others who are interested in professional writing, and that's fear. Um, there's a lot out there on you know content, on craft and style, on how to write, um, and I didn't want to duplicate that. But I did want to address the issue that you don't see a lot in writing for our profession, which is dealing with that fear. Uh, because putting your thoughts out there and putting your name on it, that can be absolutely terrifying and it can be perceived to entail some risk. And this includes fear of rejection, fear for your reputation, uh, and even fear of suppression or reprisal. So quickly addressing each of those, you know, fear of rejection, uh, getting your writing rejected, it's just part of the game and you have to accept that. I'm not patting on myself on the back, uh, but I've been published about 60 times at this point. But I can assure you that my writing has been rejected a lot more than it has been accepted. Did you say and 60 rejection, or 16? A 6 0. Wow. Um, so they, I, I love proceedings, but uh, you're, you're not the only people that, that I write for, Bill. I'm so sorry. Please, please keep me on the board. Um, <laughs> and rejection, rejection can happen for a lot of reasons, uh, some of which are benign. Uh, maybe your article isn't quite a good fit for the publication or it isn't a good fit right now. And that's okay. Uh, don't give up on your work. Be willing to pivot. Maybe it's a better fit somewhere else or a better fit at a later time. Maybe it needs some refinement, but assess the issue and keep attacking. The second issue, uh, fear for reputation. Um, this might be the scariest part because once you publish something, it's out there. There's no undo button and the internet never forgets. So as time goes by and as things change, hey, maybe your ideas become obsolete or your idea might turn out to be just plain wrong. Uh, maybe there's an aspect of the problem you didn't consider that you couldn't consider, or you made assumptions that were wrong, and now you've got your name on something that's invalid, but that's okay. Uh, you know, you're still contributing to the discourse, you're helping drive the conversation and moving things along. And even if all you're doing is putting chum in the water, you know, someone else could be attracted to that, engage with it and come up with something even better. And your goal is making the team better. It's not really about you, right? And that goal is still achieved. And finally, the last bit and it needs addressing is, is fear of reprisal. Um, it's rare because it's unethical and it's unlawful, but it exists. Um, I've experienced it uh, or attempts at it in limited forms. Other have ex others have experienced it in more adversarial forms. And the most common situation is maybe a more junior service member publishing a position with which a more senior service member disagrees. 
and then that senior exerting some sort of pressure on the junior. Now this can get complex fast based on the situation, and this is not exhaustive by any means. Um, so you have to be buried for the situation. But for general force protection uh, for yourself, you want knowledge, professionalism, and transparency. Um, so know the relevant policies and how to represent your ideas as your own. You have the Department of Defense Directive 5500-7R standards of conduct. It's pretty helpful in this regard. Be as professional as possible in corresponding with individuals like that and avoid becoming adversarial in turn because the situation can rapidly escalate. It's not professional. It's not good. Don't do it. And finally, just be transparent about your writing with your leadership. And if someone attempts to exert inappropriate pressure on you, you know, share those occurrences with your supervisor, demonstrate your knowledge and compliance with policies, and give your supervisor confidence to back you up if push comes to shove because you know that you're playing within the guardrails. Uh, but that's a quick recap of uh, Dare to Write, and I hope it helps. Yeah, I, I would just add a couple of things I, I, to your point. It is very rare. So I've been the editor-in-chief of Proceedings for four years now, and I've been here on the staff for almost six. I also wrote during my professional career, although I did not write nearly as much as you already have in your short career, your early career. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the number of people who I can say, uh, you know, really have had negative outcomes because they've written is it's they're unicorns. They really are. And, you know, sometimes somebody might say, well, I read your article. I disagree with it. Well, hey, you know what? You're free to write a comment and discussion. You're free to write a letter to the editor about it. You're free to write your own article. You know, tell me why I'm wrong. And uh, another thing I often, to, you know, tell our, our um, well, both our editorial staff, but also our ed board and and authors is it's very rare for one single article in professional writing to be the alpha and omega on any topic, right? You know, Major Brian Kirk is not going to write the definitive article that that solves all the problems of EABO in 2022. It's going to be an ongoing discussion. It's been an ongoing discussion, right? The, the Commandant and General Smith have recently said on our podcast, look, we're experimenting, we're ideating, we're trying, we're testing, we're exercising, and then we're, you know, adjusting, um, adjusting fires, right? And so that will, that, that's going to continue to happen. So um, the other thing is uh, the easiest way to, to start your professional writing is whether it's for proceedings or another another journal, you know, write a letter to the editor. For, for proceedings, we call it comment and discussion. If you see something, um, you know, you read the article, for example, one of your articles or the article by General Smith that we had in the April issue on stand-in forces, um, you know, write 500 words on it, your comments on it, your ideas on it, what you think is good, what you think you disagree with. Uh, start there, right? That can that can be a great way to kind of dip your toe in the water with professional writing, whether it's proceedings or SimSec or War on the Rocks or, you know, wherever it might be. But um, for a lot of people who, as you might say, you know, have a little bit of fear about about weighing into a, a, a debate, um, you know, start by something small, start with a commentary, start with a, a letter to the editor and then see how that goes. Absolutely. And it's really important that we don't misinterpret somebody disagreeing with you, especially if it's, you know, somebody senior, somebody who has a little bit more uh, experience on the issue disagreeing with you. That's certainly not uh, any adverse pressure. That's actually healthy debate. And I've gotten some pretty uh, energetic phone calls from people who disagreed passionately with me. Um, but I will say, again, over, you know, 60 plus articles, I've only had one like really negative experience that fit that, you know, attempt at 
uh, suppression role. Overwhel and that person was not able to do that. Overwhelmingly, it's just people that want to have a discussion gave me the opportunity to make my case. In some cases, you know, I brought them closer to my point. In some cases, they revealed information I was not never going to know through my own research methods. And they, they wisened me up and that modified my view. And that's what it's all about. It's healthy dialogue for experimentation or refinement. That's part of the discourse. That's part of the game. So uh, you, I mentioned a at the start, the uh, Marine Corps essay contest. You were the winner of our Marine Corps essay contest in 2019. So our readers could find that in the November issue 2019. It was titled, What Does the Navy Need from the Marine Corps? Which uh, our editorial staff and our ed board really uh, liked that article. I can remember viscerally reading it the first time and thinking, wow, this is naval integration. This is the Marines saying, hey, Navy, we're coming back to the the maritime environment. What do you want from us? What do you need from us? Uh, so I'm just curious what kind of feedback you got from that article. Oh, certainly. Great. Um, so I had a, a really sharp spike of positive feedback initially, and I'd say a steady drip of uh, some pretty good and rigorous feedback over time. So some quick context for the listeners. That essay was written shortly after the release of the 38th Commandant's Planning Guidance in 2019, which directed lots of changes within the Marine Corps, moving us closer toward naval integration. And Given that it was early days uh, in that uh, guidance being executed and that I was working uh, at Fleet Forces Command, I had a bird's eye view of how certain elements of the Navy were responding to the Marine Corps' move toward naval integration, as well as how certain elements of the Marine Corps were developing naval integration concepts. And the thesis is that there was a disconnect at certain echelons and advocating to get greater input from the Navy on what they wanted and greater buy-in from the Navy on naval integration. So I was able to come on the podcast and discuss that. Uh, I believe that was, uh, let's see, I got my notes here, uh, 118, episode 118, if anyone wants a deeper dive. But that essay generated some really good uh, feedback with others that were grappling with that same issue, both blue and green, notably because they were also struggling with that disconnect wherever they might have been working at a different echelon of command or within a particular working group or wherever. Um, so uh, as I was moving from working group to working group or OPT to OPT in my own job, I was able to meet with some of these leaders who I was corresponding with digitally, uh, have some pretty good conversations, do some good work. Uh, and that was a direct product of that writing. Um, and it also came up from time to time, you know, from 2019 to now, as we continue to work on this, that the level of integration still varies depending on what echelon you're discussing, what organization you're discussing. Uh, and we've definitely made a lot of positive strides, but there's arguably still uh, some disconnect. That's a, not a knock on anyone, uh, but just an observation based on the realities of competing priorities. Um, but I think that the essay is still somewhat timely in that regard, and I'll still get some uh, conversations here and there about it. Yeah, I agree. It, and I remember uh, interviewing Admiral, or General Berger on the podcast uh, about his article, which was also in that same issue, the November 2019. Uh, and I mentioned your article in that podcast and he nodded his head and said oh yeah i've seen that one so if uh if junior officers out there are wondering whether they can write and actually get attention by senior leaders the answer is yes and brian kirk is an example of one who's done that um let's shift a little bit uh now to your leadership essay contest your your most recent contribution to us it's titled leading through defeat it's in the april 2022 issue of proceedings it's about the u.s military withdrawal from afghanistan last year uh, people have called that withdrawal shameful, tragic, a strategic defeat for the United States. The military left quickly. The Afghan National Army fell apart. The Taliban retook Kabul seemingly overnight. 
There was a massive airlift to get people out of Afghanistan. A dozen or so Marines and Navy corpsmen were killed by a bombing outside the gates of Hamid Karzai International Airport. All of that was playing out last, what, August, early September. And it was just a, a tragedy unfolding uh, in the national news every day. And for almost 20 years of American service members who had served there, it was it was visceral. Um, so how did the news hit you, strike you? How did you first hear of that and then and then follow it as it happened? Well, Bill, um, you set the stage pretty well. Uh, and I certainly don't want to claim to speak for anyone else but myself, but I can say that the news hit a lot of us the same way. Uh, and it definitely tied into my motivation to write this particular essay as, as a way of like how I responded to it um, and, and how I grappled with how it struck me. So, so needless to say, the war... The way the war ended, it, it sure hit me pretty hard, um, and lots of us as well, especially those of us who served in Afghanistan. It, it naturally made us wonder, hey, were our sacrifices worth it? Um, if our brothers and sisters in arms who had given the ultimate sacrifice had done so in vain, and despite everything that had been offered, blood, sweat, treasure, tears, you know, we found ourselves once again ending a war in what history must call a defeat. It's cliche at this point to call Afghanistan our generation to Vietnam, but for many reasons, that's probably a fair description. And that's not an easy pill to swallow. Um, so that turn of events, it elicited some pretty intense passions in us. On top of everything else, among those left behind were interpreters uh, and members of the Afghan military and police forces. Those with uh, whom we developed bonds, uh, one only can forge with when serving together. And for many of us, we felt a sense of obligation to our Afghan allies and inevitably felt as though we were personally culpable in their abandonment just by our attachment to the whole experience. So in the face of all that, we saw a lot of visceral reactions. Some of us kept it to ourselves, some we shared with our peers and our families, uh, some individuals were, were very public with their sentiments, and some in the final analysis came across as though they were lashing out often at the wrong targets or inappropriately using, you know, uniform rank or position to give um, some sort of veneer of officialdom to, to their response. And I think it's worth admitting that the entire, the entire litany of reactions, while some were justifiable and, and some not, that the range of reactions is understandable. Um, you know, I can put myself in the headspace of some others who acted inappropriately. I can understand why they felt uh, that emotion and felt the need to do that, although what they did was was wrong. And it's possible and very human to succumb to that doubt, to that anger, to that fear, and to lash out in search of catharsis. And across the community, this occurred in different ways. Um, I described some of those already, and we saw a very high profile one, uh, which I won't describe right now. Um, and those feelings were shared. Um, but professional self-destruction uh, in that case, that's a resignation of our responsibilities as leaders and it's harmful to public discourse and it's damaging to civil military relations. And ultimately it sets a poor example for those that were charged to lead. So in the aftermath of all that, dealing with my own um, you know, thoughts and feelings about how the war ended, um, there was an attempt to analyze the so what. So what is our responsibility as leaders with this knowledge that the way that the war ended this way, um, what do we do now? Uh, and that led me to write the essay, lay out a few recommendations uh, on what to do in the aftermath of a defeat like this. Uh, so uh, on a different level, while I was trying to provide an example of how to responsibly handle that passion, um, it gave me a chance to channel those feelings and use them for authentic reflection and to fuel discourse. Uh, describe for our listeners your service in Afghanistan. What, what year or years were you there? What did your unit do at that time? 
Uh, sure. Um, so I was deployed to Afghanistan in 2012 uh, as part of NATO training mission Afghanistan. That was myself, 30 Marines. Um, there are about 40 Dying Corps contractors on site and about 100 to 500 Afghan border police at uh, Combat Outpost Lone Star in Pachirwa Agam District and Nangahar Province. So that's on the AFPAC border uh, near Tora Bora. Now we were charged primarily with advising and assisting the Afghan border police at our site. So training new Afghan border police recruits as well and providing some limited security functions within the district. Uh, it was pretty remote and austere. Uh, my boss was in Kabul. I saw him twice the whole deployment. Uh, and in a sense, we were the sheriffs in the Wild West. Now, it wasn't anything terribly kinetic. It was, you know, we experienced mostly harassing attacks from time to time, did some limiting patrolling, and uh, had a focus on training our Afghan partners. We trained several hundred Afghan border police, again, ran some patrols, uh, set things up to eventually turn the site over to a Kandak of Afghan National Army. Uh, and I had an incredible team of Marines uh, and some pretty great Afghan partners. So we were tight. We took care of each other and all the Marines came home. So in that sense, uh, the deployment was a success. Have you kept in touch with any of your Afghan partners uh, since you left there? Uh, yes. Um, so there's one who we got out um, very soon after, um, you know, well before things started falling apart. Um, so he was back in the States um, and we all intermittently stayed in, in touch primarily through uh, that when we got out. He, uh, he was our, our lead interpreter, our chief interpreter. So he was pretty much close to all of us. And so through him, he was also the node through which we stayed connected to the other Afghans that were over there. Now, since the um, once the situation got dire, um, our communications really spiked uh, this summer. Uh, trying to get, uh, you know, special immigrant visas thrown together uh, and other, you know, options for getting people out, writing letters of recommendation. Um, and then since the withdrawal, uh, continuing those efforts. So, you know, primarily through email, sometimes through phone, uh, as they're able to, uh, we stay in touch. Some are in hiding, some we've lost contact with, um, but some of them were still working uh, their cases um, to to get them a way out. And unfortunately, and this is this is not a knock on you know the people that are working hard. There are a lot of dedicated individuals at various agencies and echelons working this. They're just, they're overwhelmed. They're absolutely overwhelmed. So it can be you know months after we submit an application for somebody to get a special immigrant visa, for example, and then we'll get the letter of rejection because there was an error of some type. Uh, so then it's months to appeal that. Um, and oh, now we need to add this letter or change this word to that word. Um, and so that's that's the real struggle is that this is this is a marathon of these uh, these guys we work with still waiting to get out. Uh, again, a lot of people working hard, a lot of people getting burnt out that are giving of themselves very much to to help get uh, these uh, vulnerable Afghans out. Um, but uh, we're, we're all doing our best. Gotcha. Your article uh, is about keeping faith uh, with three different groups. You mentioned keeping faith with fellow service members with allies and partners, and also with the next generation. Describe what you mean by, by keeping faith with those three groups. Uh, certainly. Um, so there's there's a lot to unpack here. So regarding the first, um, keeping faith with service members, it's very common for us to blame ourselves. Um, part of that is because we're trained to believe that we're responsible for everything our unit does or fails to do, or to seek responsibility and take responsibility for our actions, right? So that's ingrained in us. So we truly believe that, um, as leaders, that the buck stops with us. Uh, then it's naturally difficult to feel, or excuse me, it's natural to feel uh, like we're responsible when our nation loses a war. Uh, a professor of military history recently told us, you know, us being a room full of field grade officers that, you know, quote, 
this happened on your watch. And he wasn't saying that to be derogatory, but in the context of explaining how we were probably going to interpret the end of the war in Afghanistan, it happened on our watch. And that we might have similar reactions that many of those involved in Vietnam had, uh, and that we might feel like we'd failed. But what that does is it presumes a level of responsibility over matters for which we completely lack you know, authority or responsibility. You know, the defeat in Afghanistan, uh, it was a product of 20 years of decisions and plans at the political and strategic level across four administrations with multiple senior commanders and tandem with counterparts in the government of Afghanistan and against an enemy that got a vote. So for tactical or even operational level leaders, uh, whether commanders, staff members, operators walking patrol in the countryside, to think that the U.S. lost because of them individually during the, the heartbeat of the war in which they were there, you know, comparatively, that's not a healthy way for us to interpret events. And I'm not discounting that guilt. Uh, as I mentioned above, I you know, think it's, it's a natural reaction for many of us, but it's important to recognize that this guilt is poisonous. Um, and so we as leaders, we are obligated to acknowledge that, to absolve ourselves and absolve our fellow service members, especially our subordinates, of any sense of guilt or responsibility for something that, that simply wasn't their fault. We, we owe that to them. As far as keeping faith with our Afghan partners, um, that goes to what I described before. You know, there are a lot of folks that we left behind, um, and that's something that we need to account for. And again, we're not in charge of policy. That's not our role. But there are things that we can do. Uh, to help. And one of the key things that is available to us is work with those Afghans, help them find a way out. We can write letters of recommendation for special immigrant visas or for refugee admission programs. Um, there are networks out there that are collaborating services that are getting them the help and the resources that they need to be able to help them work through these very convoluted systems, especially if there's a language barrier, right? Um, we can help in that way. Um, and we can we can assist. Um, we don't have to, you know, just curse the darkness and think it's it's too late. There, there's ways to help and we can keep faith that way. And finally, uh, keeping faith with the next generation. So the past 20 years of fighting in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, for that matter, generated a lot of lessons, uh, you know, case studies, TTPs, operational approaches. Um, some were more or less effective than others. And we learned a lot. Um, and within the force, that corporate knowledge still exists but it's rapidly bleeding out of the force as you know, veterans of these wars, as they separate from the service or if they simply move on to other efforts within their service. So capturing that, sustaining that knowledge somehow is critical. We're gonna to have to learn the same lessons all over again. And unfortunately there's there's a trend within the US military of, of forgetting these lessons. And you know, I can go, I go into that in the article a little bit as far as uh, examples of that, um, but we need to find a way to institutionally uh, keep this. We've shuttered our doors of organizations that were charged with doing that. Uh, and so there's less force structure put against it and less of a priority put against it in, in PME. So I'm not saying what we used to do, um, the organizations that we used to have that did this, I'm not saying they're the right fit for the future or the right mechanism to preserve the expertise. But if nothing is put against the task of preserving that knowledge and training other service members to do this, uh, that experience will be lost to the institution and we'll have to relearn everything again the hard way. I'm reminded, uh, so I've mentioned on the show in, in past episodes that I was at the Pentagon on 9-11, and I remember the, uh, the debate within the halls of the Pentagon about kicking off Operation Iraqi Freedom. So in two, by 2002, there was a very concerted effort to, uh, at, at the strategic level to 
blame the Iraqis, find some connection to what Iraq was doing. Eventually that turned into uh, pointing fingers at Iraq's WMD. And then, you know, that was, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of the, the train was leaving the station on the, the, uh, the reasons for invading Iraq in 2003. So OIF kicked off in 2003. And I remember um, Lieutenant General Newbold, U.S. Marine Corps, who was the Joint Staff J3 at the time, and he was very close with the boss of mine, uh, who was a Marine Colonel. And I remember hearing a few conversations about that decision. And he quietly told the chain of command during those debates in 2002 that uh, invading Iraq was a really bad decision, really bad policy. Uh, and then later on, you know, and, and he left. So he was told to sit down and shut up a number of times. And then he, he finally did. He, he resigned. And he was a, a, a Marine three-star who was probably going to be a four-star and, you know, likely a, uh, a combatant commander or, or a future commandant of the Marine Corps, but he retired. And then in uh, 2006, he wrote uh, an op-ed in Time magazine where he said, I wish I had spoken out publicly because here we are three years later and this has gone just as badly as I predicted it would as, and as badly as many of my fellow Marines at the time predicted this would go. Uh, but that just reminds me of what you just said, of keeping faith with the future generations, how important it is to not let those lessons be forgotten and not not say, oh, well, you know, that, that was Afghanistan and the future wars will be different. I think your generation um, is going to have to remember when, you know, a future 10 years, 20 years from now, when some political leaders decide that, hey, let's kick off another war of choice, not a war of necessity that uh, this has gone badly for us in, in a couple of different cases. And so I, I think your, your point about keeping faith with the future generations resonates with me uh, very strongly based on that experience I had with, uh, with General Newbold. Um, we're running a little short on time here. Uh, it's been a great conversation. I wanna ask, um, because you are you know, wrapping up the School of Advanced Warfighting, which is a, you know, that's a prestigious school for, for, for Marines, uh, mid, mid-grade Marines. Um, and everyone, uh, you know, in, in the U.S. military, around the world, everyone's had all eyes on Ukraine uh, and the Russia-Ukraine war for the last couple of months. I'm just curious what key observations or takeaways from your perspective or that are being discussed at the School of Advanced Warfighting or among your colleagues down at, uh, at, at uh, Quantico as you watch what's happening um, over in, uh, you know, in the, the battlefields around Odessa and uh, Kharkiv and, you know, eastern Ukraine, um, you know, what, what kinds of things are you thinking about? Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, first, as a caveat, I am the farthest thing from an expert on Ukraine or on the war being waged there. Uh, but we're certainly paying a lot of attention to it uh, at SAW. Uh, and I'd offer that, um, you know, there's some timeless wisdom that still applies, uh, even as much as things are changing. Um, there's some some key wisdom that still applies as we try to distill some take what, takeaways, and that's uh, people, ideas, things in that order. Uh, as for people, uh, perhaps the most decisive element here is the people of Ukraine and their will to fight and their spirit of resistance and courage in the face of a criminally monstrous and numerically superior opponent. Uh, matching it by pure numbers, it would have been very easy to assume that the Russians would uh, have had this in the bag. But the spirit and the morale of the Ukrainian fighters is absolutely legendary. The moral is two, uh, the material is three is to one, right? 
So we're seeing that. We're seeing that happen in real time. And so as a takeaway, instilling that spirit of resilience is absolutely essential and offering a grand ideal or a way of life for which to fight and die is a strategic imperative. Uh, secondly, ideas. Uh, Warfighting concepts and mechanisms by which to build asymmetric advantage are critical. Uh, conceptually, uh, the battle networks that are being employed by the Ukrainians, and this is inclusive of not just C2 systems, but also you know, a decentralized C2 structure, you know, you know special trust and confidence for you know, uh, leaders at the more tactical edge to make decisions without having to push it up for approval, right? That structure is far superior to the centralized C2 nodes and centralized C2 decision-making apparatuses of the Russians. Uh, as technology grows, there's a temptation to you know, keep that up so the commanders can see everything and can touch everything. Well, that, that can be a problem. Another idea at play with ideas is the importance of information warfare to build support, sustain that support from the world. Uh, Ukraine ran circles and is still running circles around Russia with the narrative and in the information domain. Uh, they demonstrated the will to fight, they demonstrated a cause worth supporting, and they galvanized a coalition to support it. External support is essential in a fight like this. Ukraine won that. Uh, not only that, but they convinced other nations to deny support to Russia across all elements of uh, national power. So ideas matter. And finally, things. So here, specifically, I'm hitting on technology. Mass still matters. Artillery and armor still matter. And I'd rather have them than not have them. But in this war, exploiting core enemy signature management employed by that aforementioned battle network, that's all allowing Ukraine to decimate Russia. Uh, there are a lot of useful applications to the concept for the Marine Corps' you know, concept for standing forces and for using naval expeditionary forces to fight inside of an enemy's weapons engagement zone. Um, and again, we should temper how far we take this. You can see some pretty absolutist conclusions coming from some people regarding uh, you know, warfare has changed and it's all precision strike and armor and cannon artillery are no more. Uh, I think that those absolutist conclusions are pretty immature uh, and, and not immature as in the people, but as far as like the how far we are into things and that they lack rigor. But if you're not getting your signature manager right, and you're not figuring out how to simultaneously employ precision fires in multiple domains, uh, you might have a bit of a problem. So that's that's how I'd wrap it up. As a Great points. Uh, people, ideas, things in that order. I like it. Uh, well, Brian, it's been great as always to talk to you. Congrats again for winning the Leadership Essay Contest and being chosen the Proceedings Author of the Year for 2021. Uh, we look forward to your next article. And uh, in the meantime, congrats on graduating from SAWS. And, uh, and I think you're off to uh, three MEF in Okinawa pretty soon. So good luck with your move. Thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate it. Once again, uh, happy to be on the podcast. Awesome. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. I want to thank our producer, Heather Legg. The show is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Since 1873, our members have been the foundation of everything we do. I also want to point out, if you're hearing a roaring noise in the background, that is the noise of the Blue Angels. Uh, so Sound of Freedom flying over Annapolis today. Uh, to become a member of the Naval Institute, go to usni.org forward slash join. Until next week, remember, Victory begins at the Naval Institute.